George and I were kids in Liverpool. Uh, we, we grew up playing guitar together. Um, and uh, one of the things we would have was a kind of party piece, just uh, occasionally, you know, just to show people we weren't as thick as we looked. So we would, uh, we would play a little piece, and, and actually we got it wrong, but we played a little piece that was by Bach, and uh, the thing we liked about it, it was it had a melody line and a bass line going at the same time. It was this piece. Really should go. But we, we didn't know that bit. So it was our little show off party piece. And actually, the bit where we went wrong uh, is. I, I later took that, the idea that uh, you've got the bass line on the top line, the melody, and it turned it uh, into Blackbird. Um, and I enjoyed that style so much, and it, it kind of worked, that uh, on this new record I thought, I haven't written anything in that style since then, so I, I wanted to kind of revisit that. <coughs> And so I was sitting around trying to write something like that with a top line and a bass line, and came up with this song called Jenny Wren. Welcome this week's When They Stop. I'm Ed Chen. And I'm Martin Quibell. Not too much news. We got a photo of Paul. So he's back in London right now. Yay. Hopefully working on new stuff. Paparazzi shot of him and Nancy out to dinner. We hear that he is actually working on something new. I don't know if the album will be out this year, but next year is certainly a possibility. And also the possibility the It's a Wonderful Life musical is still a go-ahead. I know he said that he was looking into release of the soundtrack. I guess the good thing is, if it's a soundtrack, it's probably him. That's true. They may have done some rehearsals, but I can't imagine they would have gone into a studio and actually recorded it. Maybe they've got Lady Gaga doing Donna Reed. 
And then the Ringo tour for this spring. I was right. Yay. Yes. I still have yet to decide whether I'm going. I'll have to talk with Lonnie. We got two additional shows, although they haven't been announced. The venues are advertising them. Right smack dab in the middle of his Vegas residency, he's doing a show at a casino in California. Smack bang in the middle, so... He's got about like three or four days off in the middle, and he's taking one of those days off to go and play a casino show in California. Wow. He's a busy man. And then, as predicted, he is coming back to Texas. He is going to do a show in Austin, and if I go, that may be the show that I go to. Okay, so he's doing the residency and then taking days off from the residency to just shoot somewhere else and then come back and keep doing that. Correct. Then after that, he's doing one show in Hidalgo down in South Texas, two shows in Mexico City, and follow that up with a show in Austin. That is only 11 of the 12 dates that he's announced, though. Right. Okay. So there is one more date, because he said this was going to be a 12-show tour, although, you know, 11 may be approximately 12. Wow. He's keeping busy. We'll see whether Ringo's going to do one more show for the spring tour or not. Maybe? Yeah. All right. On to our main topic. We are going to finish out season one of the McCartney Life and Lyrics podcast. Yes. Uh, shows one through four were with Lonnie Pena late last year. Shows five through eight we just did a couple weeks ago. And we're going to finish it out before we get season two in hopefully a couple weeks down the line here. I think we'll be a bit more frequent with them for season two, but no promises. <laughs> We're not that far behind. The run only finished at the end of last year. We're still in January, so, you know, we're not contemporaneous, but we're pretty close. We start in on episode nine, Magical Mystery Tour. Roll up. Roll up. We talked about last time how Paul is very much more at ease here. He's doing and saying things which he really hasn't said anywhere else in this episode. There's all sorts of things that he comes out with here that surprise me. Well, especially because he has normally been pretty open about how the drug use affected them in the 60s. And it's like, okay. But here he's adding sort of more to that legend. I know. Literally with the roll-up as well. So the episode starts out with a little bit of a description of what... uh, mystery tour actually was paul uses the same word that george used in anthology a sharabang trip it was basically a sharabang trip which people used to go on from liverpool to see the blackpool lights i don't know if we still use that term now i have a story of in the 1980s when i was a kid i went on a mystery tour on a train so we went there and I was sort of excited-ish. The train went to a place called Middlesbrough, and then it turned round and went back another 45 minutes to where we were eventually going, which was Whitby. And I just remember getting to this place called Whitby and thinking to myself, you know, we could have just stayed there and not travelled another 45 minutes and then 45 minutes back again. We would have had another hour and a half here. Lovely place, though, Whitby. It's where Dracula was created. That brings us into... Paul's description of what a mystery tour is. Do they still do those sorts of things? A cheap, all-included package holiday for a day? 
They still do those day trips. Okay. I don't know if they still do mystery trips. It can't be that much of a mystery these days with the internet and everything. No, that's true. Someone goes on one. Oh, we're going to Blackpool. I've done a mystery film before where I've gone to the cinema and we don't know what film we're going to see until it starts. <laughs> it would have to be a generic enough film that families won't get offended. Well, starting today, AMC is offering $5 movies again, but it comes with a plot twist. You don't know what the movie is until it starts up and runs on the screen. So AMC is calling it Screen Unseen. The theater will tell you, though, the movie's rating ahead of time, so you know if it's kid appropriate or not. So the first Screen Unseen movie today is PG-13, hmm. and they're calling it the Showtime Reveal Deal. So right as it starts, that's when you find out what it is? When you see the title floating across the screen, that's when you're like, oh, that's what I'm going to see here. It does say it's a new movie wow. on their website, though. Okay. Yeah. And for five bucks. As with the Magical Mystery Tour trips, too much sex or too much drugs or too much violence would probably not go real well with the surprise that you get when you're watching this film. Well, I mean, you say that, but I remember one of the surprise films that we didn't know the film was the uh, Johnny Depp one where he played Whitey Bulger, the uh, the gangster. Huh. Paul comes in after the Muldoon introduction, uh, you know, tells us the same thing that we've kind of been talking about, that the point of mystery tours was that you supposedly didn't know where you were going, but it was almost always going to Blackpool. Blackpool. I've heard that somewhere before. Is there a song called Blackpool? It's a Paul song, isn't it? Paul Muldoon go on about oh you know what's the attraction of Blackpool that was kind of like a, a low rent Coney Island is the way I would describe it I've never been to Blackpool so I wouldn't know oh, okay <laughs> um, but you just know of it Americans particularly those in the northern northeast use Coney Island as a reference point you have roller coasters and ferris wheels and then you also have this beach that you can walk along right Crikey. So, you know, if you're in, say, Manhattan and you want a day trip, Coney Island is probably where you would go. Either that or the Jersey Shore, which is actually where our good friend Kenneth Womack is based out of. Monmouth right. is very near the Jersey Shore. I can see our friend Ken out on the shore just there thinking up his next five or six projects that he's going to do in two or three months period. They play a bit of an ad telling us that coaches carry 3 million passengers annually to Blackpool and over 8 million arrive. Yeah. That's kind of a ridiculous number when you think about it. But how does, how does Coney Island compare? I would actually guess the numbers are at least comparable. It sounds like it was a big thing for them when they were younger, though. Paul also mentions that because there was the beach, it was a good thing you could get some ozone down the kids' throats. It's like, okay. I'll buy that. Okay. Then when they are talking about the attractions, then it goes a little bit psychedelic. They talk about the laughing guy. Yeah, a model that just laughed. <laughs> You'd stand in front of it and you couldn't resist laughing. 
Was it a real person? No. No, it was, it was a just a recording. I see. And but it was a little model, and it kind of moved. And it, was, it was jolly. I'm surprised they didn't sample that and put it into the uh, mystery tour song itself. In the film, it, it, there certainly could have been a place for it. <laughs> That is used as a bridge to something we've actually talked just a little bit about over on Toppermost, a gentleman named Jerry Samuels, who was billed as Napoleon the Fourteenth. With the first 13 gone, it's a bit like trying to find your username on um, Twitter. <laughs> we mention him because before he came to us as a public figure, he wrote a song for Sammy Davis Jr., The Shelter of Your Arms. A top 20 hit in 1963. Wow. He wrote it under the name Scott David. Okay. How many names does this man have? Maybe as many as Paul McCartney. Napoleon the Fourteenth is best known to us for his song, They're Coming to Take Me Away. Ha ha. Ha ha. Paul Modoon. That was a novelty song. One of those songs we probably should have forgotten about completely. But then you have shows like this that bring it back into your mind and you can't forget it. Paul McCartney actually takes it a little bit seriously. Was this a song about mental health? We were laughing about it. You know, the post-war years, people laughed at stuff, even sick stuff. You were encouraged to laugh at it as a way of defeating it, which fits in very much with Paul McCartney's personality. You find that in a lot of comedies, don't you, where you know, even the, the goons and these other people, they would play around with sketches based around mental health. And then they're they're going to mention a book as well that was around about this time. The reason they mention that is that song was popular. 66 is when Take Me Away came out. I think so. Sort of mid to end of 66, I think it was. But the lyrics of Magical Mystery Tour, particularly the coming to take you away were lifted out of that track. I never would have guessed that before I heard the show. And Paul makes the point that not only did they borrow the lyrics, they ramped them up during the course of Magical Mystery Tour. Yep, so it starts waiting. It's waiting, hoping, coming, and dying. Okay. Which I guess they cribbed from Buddy Holly as well, crying, waiting, hoping. Yes. Buddy Holly inspiring Magical Mystery Tour. So before they get to Napoleon the 14th, they borrow from Buddy Holly. And then dying is the last thing. It's like, okay, I get it. Yeah, it's a bit extreme. Then we move on to what most people think of as the inspiration for Magical Mystery Tour. Since we're talking about mental health, I'm ashamed to say this. I never quite realized that the Ken Kesey who wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is the same Ken Kesey from The Merry Pranksters. The names are both the same, so should have really realized it, but no, I hadn't either. I've read the novel before after I saw the movie. I saw the movie first, you know, the uh, Jack Nicholson film. Which one's better? I like the movie a little bit better, but there's a lot more depth to the book, I think. Uh, Anyway, that's not why we're here, but I read the novel afterwards, and I saw the author's name, but I just never connected the two. And that is important because they did a road trip, the uh, Merry Pranksters. Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. In like a sharabang, same sort of thing, a a bus that was painted psychedelically. I, I don't know if it was quite the same thing. It was certainly a case of let's go out on the road and just go, which, of course, would relate to 
Paul McCartney and Linda, you know, their thing was, oh, let's just go get lost. John Stone is very knowledgeable about Karen Kesey and the whole early acid experience. Let's not ask why, but he went on a little bit of a diversion all last year when we reviewed the uh, Across the Universe film. Okay. So if you want to know more about Ken Kesey, check in there. That is one of the better pieces of that film, actually. Insert clip. I'm not really a fan, but there is a whole section which includes Bono and Eddie Izzard, actually, on a faux Ken Kesey, Mary Pranksters type bus road trip. Bono and Eddie Izzard. Wow. Who will be playing Alan Williams in the forthcoming Brian Epstein bio. That sounds good. The Mary Pranksters were, at least in part, an influence on them, although Paul seems to kind of say, well, yeah, I don't know. I'd heard about it, but I don't know how much that actually influenced us in not so much writing the script because, well, as we know, there was no script. It must have been in the back of his mind, even if he wasn't particularly aware of it. It must have been somewhere because it's too similar to my mind for it not to be. I think there's little doubt Paul had heard of it, but... How that then came back to influence things, all the weird characters and Auntie Jessie's uh, spaghetti and what is at least nominally an acid trip there. The film Magical Mystery Tour is almost a Python-esque or proto-Python-esque sort of. It's got a general line and then everything in between are just like little skits that they've come up with to fill the film with. Yeah, which actually would have been better if they kept the traffic bit in there. Yeah. So Paul talks about his trip with Jane Asher. You know, we mentioned that he was a little bit reluctant to talk about Jane Asher in most of his previous interviews. Here he's just talking away about that West Coast trip that he took in 1967 to go and see Jane. As this chat goes on, I think he's more open to just saying, oh, I went with Jane to blah, blah, blah. It's nice to hear him just be open about this paul is saying much the same thing that we are that while it was certainly something he'd heard of it was connected in as much as we were all connected in this generation it was getting around it meaning acid it meaning psychedelic experiences yeah i took it as also meaning it was going around that there was a change in the air and what is it a generational movement to change the establishment and he also kind of goes in that direction they had permission to not be their parents yeah i think paul takes it a little bit too far a step too far it's like oh it's okay to be vegetarian we don't need to do the meat and two veg it's like well i don't know about that but i I can certainly see it's the whole thing yeah it's the whole thing of being able to choose for yourself essentially and not have the establishment choose for you So Paul Muldoon mentions the antecedents of the drug-inspired culture that it dates back not just to the beat poets, but to the romantics of the late 1800s. Yep, there's a lovely quote in here that somebody reads from Coleridge's Legend of Xanadu. Which they remind us was written under the influence of opium. Paul goes on, in school as I took those kind of classes, 
I had been told he was kind of a drug addict. So, you know, there was a history. A lot of poets were into the uh, recreational, shall we say. Byron and Shelley, Edgar Allan Poe. Here is the comment which we had mentioned earlier. Again, roll up <laughs> is another illusion, right? You know, because we were rolling up cigarettes. Right, that had not occurred to me. Of course it is. You know, that's yeah. what it is, roll up. Yeah. And so, you know, all our friends and our contemporaries would spot that. Hey, hey, that's great. Let's roll up a joint. You can kind of imagine he got this mischievous glint in his eye. Or a joint. I mean, you can't see it, but you can almost see it in your eye that he's doing that at the same time. Like a knowing wing. Roll up, roll up, for the circus of strange. Don't you think that's stretching it a bit, though, with it being roll-up cigarettes and joints? Because you look at films from back in the day when they go to, like, a circus or to any event, the introduction is sort of like somebody outside going, roll up, roll up, step right this way. You had that in these old films from back in the 40s, 50s, where people were going into a fairground or a circus or an event, and people would be shouting that outside. So, me, I think that's slightly tenuous. I think it's a dual meaning. Maybe, yeah. We, we well know that they would have been using the phrase, and they also play the, the John Lennon voiceover from the film, which is not on the song, or, or is only excerpted on the song, where he, he's doing that whole patter. Yeah. When a man buys a ticket, the incredible magical mystery tour, you know, that thing. That's interesting. I mean, you're going to edit this out, but I was listening to uh, an episode of Winter of Discontent, and they played around with a spoken intro to Maxwell for a short while, didn't they? Yeah, they did, actually. Paul continues, even a phrase like satisfaction guaranteed was a little bit of a perversion of the idea of the middle class. Yeah, and consumerism, I suppose. What it kind of reminds me of or makes me think of is the monkey's mother's little helper. That's an overlooked album, that is. And it had to have at least nominally been inspired by Satisfaction. Yeah, I thought that, because that was 65. Satisfaction and Day Tripper were both out there roughly the same time. The dueling guitar riffs. Mm. McCartney continues, These are phrases you've heard a million times, but now we were putting a spin on them. These things crept into our language, and then now today, journalists are even saying things like Long and Winding Road as both an allusion to the Beatles and just because it's a nice turn of phrase. Yeah, it's a long and winding road that we're on. That brings us to the end of this episode. You know, as I say, there's not a whole lot of real revelations, but it's great to hear Paul talking about it. And he does mention some new things. He's more earnest about his discussion of the drugs and the drug culture and what they influenced within the Beatles. It's not just him saying, oh yeah, got to get you into my life was influenced by pot, which I still now firmly believe there's no way it was pot. He was talking about acid. Yeah. I I like in this episode that um, towards the end, they also point out that, I think, is it Muldoon or Paul McCartney says that in in, in a sense, it's, it's like when his songwriting in itself is a magical mystery talk. I'm off on a trail, and I really don't know what the goal is. I do like to go there and find things along the way. Again, it's back to this concept of getting lost. Whereas I think that's almost the case with songwriting, where it was like, well, it, it will do whatever we get. That's what we'll do. And the, the sort of thing that Paul was doing around them, which 
niggled at John sometimes because John probably thought that Paul needed a bit of editing, maybe, and Paul was completely different. And that takes us back to the Here Today episode where, you know, Paul kind of talked about, oh, well, when I start writing a song, I find a little chord or a little chord sequence that I just kind of like. Yeah, yeah. Whereas John and definitely George would sweat over and do a bit more editing. From the beginning, John does the same thing, though. I mean, you know, we've heard enough of John's demos. You look at the Now and Then demo, it's only barely past that point. Yeah, that's true. He's got the chord sequence that he likes. He's got some lyrics that work that maybe scratch lyrics, but then he moves on. On to the next episode of the Life and Lyrics podcast, episode 10, Jenny Wren and Blackbird. Paul Muldoon mentions some birds in songs, but he does miss a couple. Single Pigeon and Bluebird off of Band on the Run. But, I mean, you know, Paul's written a number of bird songs, uh, most notably Long-Tailed Winter Bird, although that wasn't out when they were doing these interviews. Then Two Magpies from the Fireman, just off the top of my head. A hidden gem on the Fireman album. The episode starts with Paul talking about how he loved birdwatching when he was a kid. You see, they're getting things from Paul that we don't hear at least that often. I wonder which house he's talking about. They had a couple houses before they moved to Forthland Road. The two that I know about, neither one of them were on the edge of the country. Were they on the edge of the country back in the 1940s and the 1950s, though? Forthland Road certainly was not. Portland Road was in the middle of a big estate. Separate from this, Paul has also told the stories about how when he was a kid, he used to go out into the swamps and kill frogs because he thought that was something he'd have to do because he thought he would have to be in the military. Right. Oh, dear me. That has to be the same fields that he was going out and doing bird watching in. Did you catch the title of the book that he said he took out with him? Because I didn't. The Observer's Book of Birds. I would guess bird watching really was something that a lot of people did. Now, I can't imagine John Lennon going out bird watching. Certainly not that type of bird. <laughs> Paul was probably more successful than John at that type of bird watching as well. Paul was, shall we say, multi talented in different types of bird then. Paul talks about the different types of birds he would see out in this rural area and how the wren was a great favorite of his. It was one of the birds he was able to recognize from a young age and and how he just kind of liked the song of the wren and how it was always singing. Yeah. I mean, thinking about it, going back to the subject of him writing about birds, that's just reminded me that another one of his songs, which one is it, Ed, where he talks about the cardinal? You tell me, the bright red cardinal flew down from his tree. Yep. So, birds again. The mascot of my high school was a cardinal. So, I I always appreciate the the really bright red cardinals. They're a beautiful bird. I wish we had them over here. Which are the males? The females are rather dull looking. Yeah, in the bird world, they usually are, aren't they? The the females are not quite as uh, colourful. But cardinals in particular, because they are so brilliantly red. Anyway, you're not here for the bird-watching podcast, although uh, it, it, at least this one is our podcast about podcasts about bird-watching. Yep. Watch this space. We'll, we'll have a future episode where we have some ornithologists on. That is the next thing Paul says. He says he's a rabid ornithologist. Big word there, Paul. He knows his language. 
He sure does. Continuing on, birdwatching was one of his earliest escapes. And this kind of reminds me of the things we've had, again, in some of the past episodes where he was talking about, oh, you know, here's a list of things that I had to, to run away from You know, when, in the Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey episode. You know, here he's saying when he was a kid, he had to get away from school and errands and work and other people. Something that... Some of us still do from time to time. So, you know, it reminds me a little bit of Confidant. McCartney talking about going off and his guitar being the one that he could kind of rely on to tell his secrets to. They mentioned that he wrote the song basically going out into like a forest or something, I think he says, with his guitar and just letting nature be his inspiration. When you're writing something as embarrassing as potentially embarrassing as a love song, it's best to hide away in the furthest corner cupboard you can find so that no one can hear you. Did, did he say go and sit in a cupboard or something? Well, yeah, he started off with a cupboard and then he says, it's best to hide away in the furthest corner cupboard. It's got to be me and just me and the guitar. So, I mean, you know, that's what I'm saying. That's kind of like what he's talking about in Confidant. Yeah. And then when he talks about going into the forest, he calls the his outdoors cupboard. Because if someone would happen upon him, that would be the worst possible thing. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. A troubadour wandering in the forest. You really get a feel for how Paul thinks. It's a good job that there were no uh, bears or anything. Another bit of Paul Muldoon just kind of saying something. Your impulse to get into that cupboard, um, yeah. to get into that little place to work. Yeah. It's a kind of nesting impulse, I think, is it? Partly. Yeah, maybe. I don't know about that. I think that may be just one step too far here. It's the poet in Muldoon going there. Paul continues, he wrote the song In the Hills of Los Angeles. Oh, yes, those famous hills, of course, which is where, um, you know, they had that music scene, didn't they, in the 60s and 70s? Yeah. He he describes finding a quiet little parking space. I took a guitar, and then unusually, I don't think I've ever heard Paul be quite as sarcastic as that. No, even I take a guitar in the back of my car just in case I get inspired. Okay, so Paul goes on about the story nature of this song, and both McCartney and Muldoon seem particularly excited by the possibilities that are inherent in these lyrics. Because you've got things like where he says, you know, she, she could sing, but we don't know what stopped her from being able to initially. And then it, it's sort of like a story that he has going, starts there, and eventually you find out what the reason is for not singing. And there's a bit of hope towards the end anyway, but I think I've already gone a bit further along than we were planning on going with that yep now something which i didn't know and i've read some dickens i've never actually read our mutual friend i've read it when they mentioned the character jenny wren it did remind me of the fact of that character but i don't remember the book very much but i do know that i read it when I was younger at school i like that paul muldoon brings up all these literary antecedents yeah, so do I. I think I've heard in interviews with Paul before where Paul said that he read Dickens when he was younger at school. So it's quite possible that he could have read this book and just remembered the name of the character Jenny Wren from that book. 
I don't doubt it. And then they also come up with the fact that that's just something that they use, whether it's out of the book or whether it's just something that kids picked up. They go around calling the wrens that they see Jenny Wren. Yeah, a bit like Peter Rabbit, I suppose. People probably called rabbits Peter back in the day. I don't know. Maybe. I do like that Paul Muldoon mentions the similarity between the use of Broken World in the lyrics for Jenny Wren and then um, says that it's reminiscent of the Broken Wings uh, line in Blackbird. Then leads to a brief bit of discussion where they talk about how there's almost crosstalk going on between McCartney's own songs, that one song is talking to the other one. That's interesting. A bit like uh, John, when he used to throw bits for or little like nods to his older songs in later songs. Glass Onion, uh, to make an obvious example of it. The Walrus's Pool. And then into the solo career in a song which we will talk about soon because it's in covered in one of these other episodes. So Sergeant Pepper took you by surprise. Yep, and then he mentions Paul's song yesterday in that same one, but we'll get there. Paul then uses that to talk about a story we've heard before about how he and George like to uh, play box uh, Boray in E minor and how that was kind of their party piece song. They worked out part of it and then eventually it's almost like they got bored and couldn't work out the rest of it, so they made up their own variation after that bit that they learnt. Well, it was that, and I think they just didn't like the other part so much. They gotten down to the descending bass line on the guitar, and it's like, oh, well, you know, we don't need to go any further with this. We can go in our own way. Yeah, essentially, they've copped a style that they can use for their own songwriting in that little section, and they don't need any more of it because that's the only part that they need to use then for their arsenal for later. Which is also very similar to the Michelle story. Yeah, absolutely. Paul continues that they switched it around a bit and made it my own. And then he makes a claim which I don't think is right. I don't know where it I think it was in Scotland at the time on the break. I got this idea of a blackbird. He wasn't going to Scotland that much by this point. You know, Jane was not a fan of the Scottish farm. And he and Linda hadn't really gone down there maybe once. He had bought that property at that point he bought it in like 66 yeah so perhaps he might have been there once or twice but not really paid much attention to it and until linda came along unless he'd been to scotland for some other reason for a holiday i don't know that he would have necessarily seen or heard the blackbird there we've got a couple of different versions of where the original inspiration came from the more likely one is that it came from india well we get them feeding on our backyard we don't have to travel too far for blackbirds (laughs) in the uk then that's the other version angie and ruth the grandmother was living with jim and them and paul came to visit one day when she wasn't feeling well and she told him this story of a blackbird who was singing in their backyard every morning and she always awoke to it. And there is a demo that they have where, you know, Paul says, oh, this is for Angie and Ruth. Different stories. Quite possible that they could just be merged. But the point is that Scotland is none of these stories. No. Scotland is kind of new here. It is. 
a bit about recording the song, a bit about how Paul enjoyed going into the EMI sound archives, that, that all he had to do is give me some bird song, and he found the one that he liked. And, well, I mean, as we know, that's not actually a blackbird singing. No, it's not. If they wanted to remix Jenny Wren, they could always use a, a sample from this very episode. As we will discover, because, yes, during this discussion, and, and this is – one of their Zoom discussions, you can hear a little bird singing during this whole song. She could sing, she's a great singer, and she doesn't sing anymore. Until we got to the very end, I thought that that was just an effect that they put in, but it wasn't. No, I thought that was lovely when they suddenly realized and Paul Muldoon said, do you know what that is in the background? And he said, that's a house wren. Then that leads to the other version of this story that Paul likes to tell. A lot of people think that Paul is just being a little egotistical when he talks about civil rights meant something. But I mean, you know, he was there in the studio with Mary Hopkin and Donovan. So in late 68, which was just after the song had been recorded, he kind of talks to them a little bit on the tape about, oh, you know, th this is a little bit of civil rights thing because we've been reading that and hearing about it and I wanted to send out a message. Although in the same conversation, he says, uh, well, I played it to Diana Ross and she got offended. Yeah, some people get offended by things when they're not intended that way. I think he's kidding. I can understand ever so slightly. I mean, particularly because black kind of was a slightly more derogative term in the states than it was uh, in england at that time and i suppose a comparison there would be the rolling stone song brown sugar exactly paul continues uh, he talks about little rock that's something that he has really brought out as a story when he sings blackbird in concert and then particularly oh a couple years back when he sang blackbird and little rock and the ladies from the school actually got up on stage with him yeah i don't remember that actually being mentioned about the song until ooh, probably the 2000s. He mentioned it in interviews occasionally. Maybe the 2001 tour was the first time he kind of made a big deal about telling that story. I mean, I see this song as multi-layered, essentially, where he's probably started with the initial inspiration of the Blackbird singing itself, wherever that came from, and then... He just threw other elements in there and it's almost word association where he's associated it with desegregation of the schools and what was going on in the US. And, you know, Paul says that. I realized I was sending it in that direction to do with freedom, really. He's talking about freedom. <laughs> no, we won't go there. Okay, so that brings us back to Jenny Wren talking about the duduk, which is this strange little instrument which makes that kind of whistling, humming sound. Paul Muldoon yeah. describes it being very haunting. Yeah. I mean, it's not Paul that's playing the Duduk itself. It's an Armenian Duduk uh, player, isn't it? Yeah. There's actually video of them recording the instrument in the studio in the press kit for this song, for the album. It's a small reed instrument, and... If you don't look too closely, it's about the same size as a standard soprano recorder that children would learn with in schools. But the, the difference is that if you look at it closely, it's got a reed at the end that comes out that gives it that distinctive depth and the haunting sound. That then leads into a discussion of the lyrics of Jenny Wren, how it's sad, and how he intentionally didn't tell you what it was she was seeing that made her stop singing. 
Yeah, but we do find out why she stopped singing, don't we? Paul just comes out and says that what she saw, she saw us, us meaning humanity, screwing things up, screwing the planet up. As Paul describes it, the ocean didn't fill itself with plastic. We screwed that up. The world's foolish ways, as it says in the lyrics. A little bit of gentle chastising reminds me a little bit of Greta Thunberg, actually. Yeah, that's a good point. Would that have been similar time when she was starting to uh, become a high profile? That would have been too early for that. Okay. It ends with Paul saying that despite all of that, he is optimistic. It's good to hear Paul acknowledge that. We say that all the time, but he knows both his own reputation and how he actually is. And the song ends with, the day will come. It's going to be a great day. Jenny Wren will sing. Which also reminded me a little bit of Great Day. Yes, Great Day. He's nodding to old songs again. Songs are talking to each other, as they said earlier. Then we get the reveal from Paul Muldoon that the bird was actually a bird that was actually singing in the actual room over the Zoom call. Can you hear a little bird singing at the moment? Yes. That's a wren. Is it really? Yes, it is. It's a house wren. Wow. The Indian name for it, I happen to know, is the, a little bird with a big voice, and that's it. Wow. Oh, Paul, that is pretty cool. <laughs> oh, I love that little Jenny Wren. Do you think that was on Muldoon or McCartney's end? It would have had to have been on Muldoon's end. Okay. He knew exactly what he was doing on this Zoom call. I would bet that that bird is probably in another room most of the time that they were talking. It's like, oh, well, we're going to talk about this song, so I'm going to make sure the bird can be heard. Cue the opening of the door. Uh, bird, 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 the bird is the word. All right, enough of that. The two of them then agreed that that was a nice little surprise. Very timely to go with the song they were talking about. <laughs> so we move on to episode 11. Too many people. This is a very honest episode. Paul reveals that John was firing missiles at me with his songs. I don't know what he hoped to gain other than punching me in the face. That kind of annoyed me, so I decided to turn my missiles back on him. Like you said, very open in this, and it was surprising how open he was about the feelings and what was going on. The one thing he was kind of less open than I would have liked, he didn't go after Alan Klein, but just a little bit. I think Paul's been a little bit relaxed on the Alan Klein front since Alan passed away. Perhaps. We get into the episode. Paul is talking about uh, what it was like. Once again, we get into the Beatles talk. When it got to some of John's accusations, accusations in a couple places, not just in song, but the Rolling Stone interview in particular, I was the body that these accusations were being flung at. I had to accept this, but it hurt. Again, that's not something that we've ever really heard Paul say. No. It's interesting that they say that John himself wasn't happy with that interview itself that Paul is talking about, the Rolling Stone magazine one anyway, is he? It's the same thing we've said about John Lennon, that John would change his mind minutes later. I don't think he was really all that upset with the content of the Rolling Stone interview. There were things that he might have thought were taken out of context a little, even though the whole context is there. I think it was more a matter of, I said what I said, and that, that was what I was thinking at the time. It's back to bigger than Jesus. 
It is. I do like the fact that Paul Muldoon does say... Who broke up the Beatles? Was it Paul McCartney or was it John Lennon? Was it the death of manager Brian Epstein, the interference of businessman Alan Klein, or somehow the mere presence of Yoko Ono? No matter how many times this question has been asked, trying to answer it seems futile. There are many reasons why the Beatles broke up. So in this episode, we won't be trying to find a definitive cause for the Beatles breakup. Instead, we will be telling the story of its aftermath. Although they do talk about it a little bit because you can't help but talk about it. Right here, they're talking about the Beatles splitting up, John coming in and saying he wanted a divorce. But I mean, the thing is that wasn't anything new to any of them. They'd been saying that for at least a year. They say it didn't get back. It's a question that I don't really see a point to to asking in a sense. They got it right there as well. It's like, it's going to look ridiculous in 50 years they broke up because Yoko sat on an amp. (laughs) Or stole a digestive biscuit. (laughs) Paul continues on that John was almost excited by the prospect of leaving the Beatles. And Paul describes it as John being a little bit loony, but in the best possible way. I, I like that description. And so, you know, Paul knew John just as well. Yes, that's true. But you can still hear the hurt in Paul's voice as he talks about, that's all good and well, but you know, if you're sitting there on the opposite side of the fence, it's not so funny. No. As Paul says, you know, and he's said a few times over the years, when it comes to that, it was three against one. Then Paul kind of claims that they were thinking about forming a group and calling themselves the Threedles. Again, I don't know if that's grounded in reality. Paul mixing up all of the 90s stuff with what was going on. I I do think that Paul, George, and Ringo talked about a group, but that name, I don't think so. But you have got the three tools on the Let It Be album. George is there talking about Mickey and Tish. That's true, yep. Here is really the only bit that Paul is talking about Alan Klein, and you can hear he is still seething a bit about Alan Klein, that he believed that Klein was going to take over the, the entire Beatle empire. And that's an idea I wasn't too keen on. He sort of like laughs it off, but you can see that he has a problem with John's reaction to Paul saying about Klein, you know, all the things that people have said about Klein and, you know, the mismanagement of the Rolling Stones and this, that and the other. And then John just laughs it off and says, well, because people are saying that, it can't be that bad. Ringo said the same. We've got a thug, but at least he's our thug. The gangsters back in the day, they were doing it all wrong. They should have been attached to all of these musicians. Well, we know one that was. Yes. Some discussion of the series of lawsuits, which reminded me of that little bit of the Ruddles, about how the Ruddles were suing each other and how they took out half of the greatest legal minds in England, which fortunately wasn't that great of a loss. (laughs) Once again, Paul comes up. The whole point of the lawsuit was that he was not only trying to protect my bit of the Beatles, it was, in point of fact, their bit too. It's interesting to, to hear Paul be honest his recollections of that era. Like you said, he's, he's, he's a bit more open about some things now, and this is allowing him to get things off his chest, I think. So Muldoon kind of takes it back to the Winter Rolling Stone interview. I'm having to read this stuff. On the one hand, I'm thinking, F-O, you you effing idiot. And that's my main sentiment. On the other hand, it's like, why would you say that? Is it about me? Are 
you annoyed me, jealous. John had all these emotions wrapped up in a ball of linen. I love that quote. I like that. Ball of linen. Yes. Muldoon then gets into the song talking about piece of cake and how that relates to piece of the pie, piece of the apple pie. Yeah, people trying to grab a piece of the pie. He was talking about people trying to get a hold of the piece of the Beatles themselves, the money they're in and of the Apple Corporation. Which reminded me all the way back to all, all too much. All the world is birthday cake. Take a piece, but not too much. Wow, that's a good point. I'd not thought of that link between the two songs. Well, that's a George song and a Paul song, but uh, once again, they're back to the song. And, and Paul saying, you know, I think what I was writing was quite mild. I didn't really come out with any savagery. The first verse in chorus is all the anger I could muster. Yeah. And of course, the uh, <clears throat> piss off cake. So piece of cake became piss off cake. His heart really wasn't in, in it. Like you said, it was that first little bit. And then he, he just finished the song off after that. And then, of course, John would then take those sentiments and amplify them a million percent. And not just John, but George in the room and playing on the record. Yes. Allegedly, uh, Klein and Yoko were both in the room. I don't know if they were in the room when they were performing, but they were certainly in the room when John was writing the song. But the rumor is that Ringo came to visit while they were recording Imagine, and they played a rough version of the song to Ringo. And Ringo was kind of like, John, that's taking it a little bit too far. Yeah. Mm. The line Alan Klein had that was included was the only thing you done was yesterday. Do you think he did the follow-up line as well? And since you've gone, you're just another day. He might have suggested the another day, but I would guess that John kind of wrote the rest of that. Now you can say something about one of his current songs. Well, like another day, that's just one of those mealy mouth McCartney songs. Like, oh, great, Alan. Yeah, perfect. So... You know, I don't think he would have written the lyric, but once again, we can kind of hear the anger. The anger still in Paul's voice. He's he's gotten over a lot of it, yeah. but it's still there. Uh, well, yes, because he gets another f bomb in, in a response to um, to that line as well, doesn't he? I've got to work very hard to not take this seriously. All I ever did was yesterday. Well, what about Eleanor Rigby? Let it be. F you, John. Yeah. And that's what he says. Muldoon has an uh, interesting observation. The, the lyric about the, the party line was almost like a reference to towing the party line. Paul McCartney does mention about the fact that we had party lines in the UK. Did you have the same thing, Ed? Here it was more, you would like dial a number and you could kind of have a bunch of people on the line. And once you can do the same thing with cell phones. Yeah. You can loop in three or four or five people on, on a conversation on a, on the telephone, on, on a cell phone. And, and I mean, that was kind of what a party line was here. We had an issue with phones over here where you would ring somebody and the operator would put the little plugs into the wrong holes, essentially, and you'd end up talking to somebody on a different phone to the one that you've rung. So, and you'll, or you'll have another call from somebody else suddenly interfering with the phone call that you've got because they'd accidentally link the two phone calls. I still have that happen. On occasion, there are squirrels which will chew through our phone lines. Back before the cell became my primary phone, there were at least once every two or three years, the squirrels would chew through the phone lines and that would then send the signals through multiple lines. So my phone would ring when someone was calling the neighbor. 
Wow. So it's not intention, but it's the same effect. I almost wish it did it still nowadays, because then I'd probably just stay and talk to that person that we've accidentally been linked to. I was in my, oh, 30s or so, and the neighbor had these teenage girls, and I picked it up. Then the neighbor girl picked it up, and it's like, who's that old man on the line? It's like, thanks a lot. Oh, dear. (laughs) Anyway, we continue. Paul once again talks about how John was just kind of naive. He explains about war is over as being a naive side of John. Where it says it's a nice sentiment, but he's not sure whether he believes. Once again, Paul is being honest. And I think he is kind of telling some truth here. Not just John, but you had a lot of people who think that the only truth is their own truth. Well, what if they saw the world today? I mean, that's certainly the way we live in our politics in 2024, both here and over in your country. Yes. I'm not saying that I agree. I think it's more than a nice sentiment. Paul agrees. I think it's something that you need to get out and you need to let people know your opinions. But I think Paul is also right that John was a little bit strident in, here's what I think, and this is the way everybody must think, because that's the only way we're going to get anything done. It's like, well, you got to you know, come to some agreement, because not everyone's going to think the same way you do, John. They mentioned before about them wanting to change things from the establishment, telling them how they should be. And essentially, Paul is saying that these things that John and these people are saying is almost the same thing of people saying, this is how you should be thinking. This episode is kind of like, you're going to be one way or the other. You're going to think like Paul, you're going to think like John. I think I kind of lean a little bit more towards Paul's side, which is John had some great big ideas, but he was also incredibly naive about how to express them. It's the wonder of the uh, McCartney and Lennon dichotomy where they both worked so well together with each other, but they were different in some ways. But they helped each other in that way because they became like a whole as the two sides together. Imagine is only so anthemic because the people who are really listening to it are the ones who are predisposed to take the message in. Wow. Gone all philosophical. We then go on a little bit more in the song, and it leads to Paul and Paul Muldoon talking about the business of competitiveness between Paul and John, which is kind of what we were just talking about. In particular... When they were sitting there and doing these things, that was the nature of our competitiveness, and we were both very upfront about that. You know, if you'd write a good one, I'd feel like I had to write a better one. You know, that is a very, very common phenomenon mm. and a very understandable one. It's also a great thing, yeah, because totally. um, it's inspiration. You know, it's it's motivation. If you've got someone who you respect, who comes up with something rather good. Sure, it happens to everyone. Totally. You know, you'll suddenly see so-and-so's new poem and Mm -hmm. think, Mm -hmm. hmm. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily have to tell anyone. No. But in your own private mind, you just think, well, I could do that. Mm -hmm. They were constantly trying to one-up each other in the Beatles, and like Paul said, you know, he thinks that it carried on post-Beatles, because he thinks that John was listening to him as much as he was listening to John. Paul doesn't want to talk about that they did have a little bit of a reproachment. They weren't going to keep this diss track business up. It's like, okay, we each got in a couple hits. We're not going to do this in public anymore. 
Yeah. Paul changed his mind soon enough because he would write a song to try and appease John. Dear friend, yep. Yep, which they do mention in the episode. That's kind of how the episode ends. We get a little bit of talk of dear friend and that it really was Paul trying to, if not apologize, at least say, you know, hey, why are we doing this? Why is this argument going on? Once again, it's kind of a, a repeat of what he said earlier. Is it because you were afraid? Are you afraid of me doing something to you? Is it the consequences? Uh, once again, it ends on that hopeful note. Paul says, well, I'm glad that we really did manage to get together a little bit over the ensuing years. It was super, super painful. And so there was a lot of navigation of emotions to be done. A lot of hurt to be sailed around and and but we we did it and you know in the end I was, that was something I was very glad of when he got uh, murdered was that I had had uh, some really good times with him before that happened it, it would have been the worst thing in the world for someone like me mm-hmm. had he just been killed and we still had bad relationship I would have just thought, oh, I should have, I should have, I should have, I should have, you know. That would have been a big guilt trip for me. But luckily, you know, we we were friendly and we talked about how to bake bread. Once again, he talks about baking bread. Been there, done that. I can understand them. You know, it's kind of like the COVID thing. It's like everyone went off and learned how to make bread during COVID. I ring John. And I was baking bread and got quite good at it, you know. So when I heard John was doing it, it was great. We could just talk about something so ordinary. There's no threat or anything. It was just two guys talking about, well, I don't know, what, what, do, you, do you leave it overnight or what do you do? Mm. You know, and someone sort of said, yeah, I leave it overnight in a hot cupboard. And you'd just be chatting and it was, it was really nice. And I was so glad that, that we got back to that relationship that we'd always had. You know, when we were kids, we'd lived in each other's pockets for so long that it was it was great to get back to that. The reason Paul was trading bread recipes with John was that he had to make bread for the family because there was no store to go to to get bread. There was a strike or something going on. But also, if they were in Scotland, then they've got a bit of a traveling to get to the local village stores i suppose that as well and so the episode ends with muldoon talking about what paul's done the last couple of years on the got back tour you know the malizing i've got a feeling and john being put up there on the screen and paul actually getting a chance to sing with john once again all kind of summed up with paul mccartney's adoration for his friend has only deepened in the ensuing years which is kind of nice after we spent this last 25, 30 minutes with Paul really kind of seething about that period in time. All the hurt and all the anger is still there just under the surface. Yeah, you can see it there yeah, or hear it. All right, so we go on to the final episode of Series 1, Episode 12, Helter Skelter. You called it Series 1, Ed. I thought Americans called them Seasons. It starts out... Again, with the story we kind of know, Paul had read in the NME that Pete Townsend was saying that The Who had just recorded this loudest, dirtiest, most raucous thing ever. And so, again, just as we talked about his competition with John, 
Paul said, okay, let's do that. I like what Paul says. Let's just try and really make the meters peak. Let's try and get them all the way up to the red, shall we? <laughs> That's a good idea. Continuing into the definition of what a helter-skelter is, and he's right, we have similar types of slides, but far too often it kind of is described as a roller coaster, but it's not really. It's more like a children's slide. Yeah, it's like a uh, 20 to 25 feet tower that has a slide that goes around the outside. It doesn't go straight down in a straight. It goes around it and down to the end, and then you climb back up the stairs at the back or wherever it is or inside to go back up and go and do it again. A barrel of laughs. Yeah. Lots of fun. Yeah, exactly. So you played on them as a kid. Yes, I went to fun fairs and enjoyed that. <laughs> okay. Paul continues explaining that that was the original inspiration, but the lyrics are really more a symbol of life, thinking of moods, thinking of emotions, up, down, euphoria, misery. It's the nature of life. I like the fact that they say that it's also a metaphor for the way that the Beatles play in the studio as well. Which then leads to one of the demos of Helter Skelter. It's a bit playful, but I don't know if that's necessarily the most playful one, but all right, they had to choose a version of Helter Skelter. We're still not going to get that long version, 27 minutes and 11 seconds long. From what everyone says that has heard it, it's really just kind of double the one we get, the 14-minute version we get on Anthology. But just seven minutes of the same. Once again, is really not that raucous of a version. No. It's almost like Paul's answer to your blues at that point. When I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the hill. Where I stop and I turn and I give you a feel. And I lay down on me and I fall again. Yeah, 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 yeah. They mention Helter Skelter as being an antecedent to any number of things. My generation from The Who. And incidentally, we tend to believe that the song that Pete Townsend was describing was I Can See For Miles, which, again, isn't all that raucous of a a rock and roll song, to be honest with you. No. And I mean, another one that I've heard suggested was Pictures of Lily that is definitely not raucous or... (laughs) Dirty and loud. Then on into Hendrix with a little bit of Purple Haze, describing how, quote, things got heavier through the 60s into Black Sabbath, although the bit of Black Sabbath they play, again, is not all that heavy. No. I mean, they could have gone Led Zeppelin as well from the year before, 1969. You know, the year before Black Sabbath. I mean, the the metal they chose to put in this episode is not the heaviest of heavy metal, because we, we get a little bit more later here. I was going to say, they're not going to suddenly throw Pantera in there, you know. <laughs> this is true. Even like Poison, I don't think they would necessarily throw. Probably not, no. So this leads to kind of a diversion where they talk about how one day they actually got a second speaker in Abbey Road. They'd always mix down to a single speaker, and then, then one day they came in and there were two speakers. And it's like, oh, great, it's twice as loud. Brilliant. <laughs> Oh thinking they could put twice as much music in there. <laughs> well, I mean, to a certain extent, they could. Then Paul goes on yeah. to explain how George Martin told them, no, no, it's stereophonic sound. And that once they kind of figured that out, what the Beatles did, which is, I mean, almost kind of what Giles is doing with Atmos, is you figure out where you want to make things move around from speaker to speaker. 
Individual instruments would start to move from one speaker to another. So a lot of our things in the mix is just go for walkies. And guitar just decides to go over there for a while. Yeah. I like that a lot. Go for walkies. Well, yeah, sometimes the guitar will just decide to go over there for a little while. Yeah, as you do. It then goes back to Paul once again talking about how at this point the lunatics were taking over the asylum. We got control of pretty much everything. Being a bit of a perfectionist, I'd fuss. Paul admitting that he's a perfectionist, that is a a really, really fascinating thing to come out of this episode. It is, but it didn't... Quite a few people already think that anyway. I mean, I certainly thought that Paul was a perfectionist. Oh, we all thought it, but when have we heard Paul McCartney say it? He's always kind of demurred a little bit, and it's like, oh, no, no, I'm I'm a bit of a perfectionist. For him to say that here, it's like, wow, that's really great. It is. (laughs) We'd sort of work out the song, and then I'd sort of run up into the control room and listen to the drum sound. And sort of say to the engineer, can you make this a bit you know, harder and harder? And I'd fuss and fuss till it was like, for health scale, till it was kind of quite raucous, you know. And really just try and coach the engineers. And then you could leave them. They were brilliant. And they would multiply what you suggested and sort it out, make it, make it better. It's the sort of thing that Paul was saying to the other Beatles that was irritating them a bit. I think that, you know, uh, do what you can think of, but I'll tell you what to do. (laughs) Then it goes into Nowhere Man and one of the stories about they wanted it that much more on the treble side and he turned it up all the way. It's like, no, that's still not enough treble. Can you put it through another track? And so they ended up running it down about four times to get enough treble on the guitars. I said, well, could you put it through another lot of EQ? So he did. He sent it through the next channel. And, of course, then this was like a game. Could you put even even more, you know? So we had him going through, I don't know, quite a few channels. He's as blind as he can be Just sees what he wants to see They dropped all the bass down and the mid down and just turned up the treble of the same guitar being bounced onto those different EQs. Again, a bit of a suggestion from Paul Muldoon, which is not something that I'd ever thought of, that will you, won't you, do you, don't you, was out of Alice in Wonderland. No, I'd never thought that before until they played that lovely clip that they've got of Gene Wilder doing the Lobster Quadrille. Yeah, and Paul didn't deny it. It's just something that no one, well, I won't say no one, that I have never picked up on. No, I've never picked up on that either, and I've seen a few different versions of Alice in Wonderland as well, probably including this one, actually. Once again, we get Paul being just a little bit more honest than he uh, he usually is. That Don't let me break you. Well... That was a little bit about sex and a little bit about drugs. Just a little bit, yeah. Coming down fast could be a drug component. Well, that could be a sex thing too, you know. Yep. We were trying to throw it all in, which then leads to a little discussion of the Easter eggs that both are there and are imagined to be there. 
Yeah, I mean, one of them that is there that you know is done on purpose is the one in Girl, where they're all singing tit, 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 tit. Paul, we were really happy. I bet they were. And, and then the one in Penny Lane, which is a little bit better known, four fish and finger pies. Well, okay. Yeah, well, okay, we, we know what you're talking about there, Paul. Would you believe that I was naive enough not to realize that until it was mentioned, oh, a number of years ago in an interview, and I thought, I never knew that. <laughs> Paul, people in Liverpool would get it, but no one else would. I didn't get it. I'm not from Liverpool. <laughs> they then use the misreading of what was in Beatle lyrics to at first talk about Paul is dead. <sighs> we are still so tired of Paul is dead, aren't we? I know I am. Why people keep bringing it up. You gotta believe that it's just a joke, but they seem so earnest about it. I know, I know. It's like it's like flat earthers. And the point is, what does it matter? If Paul was replaced, the duplicate replaced him in 1966, and everything from Rubber Soul forward was the duplicate. Okay, the guy from 62, 63, and 64 died. Okay, well, fine. The genius is yep. the one who's still here writing songs. Not that I believe yep. it. The best Paul is dead thing remains that issue of Batman. I haven't got that issue of Batman. Batman, I believe, was number 222. There's a Paul is dead-like thing going on, and, and Batman has to solve the mystery. Not to spoil it, but in the end, it turns out the other three were dead. Oh, right. Wow, that that's quite a twist. So the Paul was the only one that was still actually with us. And right. Did M. Night Shyamalan write that one? <laughs> uh, he was probably about one at the time, so I doubt it. Oh, okay. Doubtful then. That leads to the far more nasty thing which came out of Helder Skelter, and, well, that's Charles Manson. Another Beach Boys link, unfortunately. We've mentioned Manson and his associates a couple times over on the toppermost side. Terry Melcher, Doris Day's son. We get a little bit about what happened with Manson. Not too much, and you can still tell that someone would do that in his name just horrifies him still. Because that's a sort of horror show, you know, when you suddenly realize. I mean, we knew that there were sort of daft Americans who read way too much into everything we did. That's okay. Let them. But when Manson did it, when, when the Manson Association with the murders, then that was, oh, okay, this is no longer funny. This guy, because he really thought we were the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Yeah, but I mean, I, I like something that Paul said about that, which is that it was just wordplay that he was doing, and he, he said that the lyrics weren't meant to be interpreted in this song, but they were just meant to be felt, and it was all about the emotion that they were putting over or, or the way that they felt. It was nothing at all to do with him trying to tell a story. Key meaning Manson really thought that we were the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and we were horrified. As you would be. A great quote from Paul where he says, you know, what we were really trying to do, we didn't accomplish until revolution. Because that is probably the ultimate sort of nasty, dirty, overdrawn guitar sound. Yes. The microphone's not good on that either, is it? Because I think uh, on the video you can see George saying something about the microphone to that song, well, Revolution. Well, that or he's saying something about John. I mean, a lot of people believe that John had not bathed that day and George is leaning over to Paul and saying, you know, John smells like... 
Yeah. That is one way you can read those lips. Paul continues, we like that. It, it's very much part of rock and roll, whereas orchestral or dance band will try and be gentle or romantic. Rock and roll was kicking that over. I mean, that's not him putting down the gentle or romantic. He's basically saying that they were happy to play in all these different sandbox, yeah. Paul continues, we played the hell out of it. It's pre-heavy metal, but might have inspired someone in the same way the Townsend quote inspired me. I could see a direct correlation from this to what they were saying with, you know, the uh, Black Sabbaths and the Deep Purples and all these other, you know, as they would be heavy metal bands. Well, and they kind of end up with Motley Crue. The funny thing is the Crue version of Helter Skelter is less raucous than the Beatles version. Yeah, even on the album version, because the one that they play on this is a live version, the album version of Motley Crue's is very tame in comparison as well. Once again, bringing up the Manson thing, Paul talks about how he didn't want to play it live for a number of years and that he's okay with it now, but that the memories of it were too hard for him to do. Yeah, he didn't play it at all until he did Glastonbury. Now it's a staple of the encore and, well... Since it's me, I have to tell the story. Last year, when Kid O'Toole and I went down to Orlando to go see the McCartney show, the Got Back show, he got to the encore. It had been a really nice, well, not really nice, but pretty nice day all day. And then sort of all of a sudden during the middle of Helter Skelter, lightning started coming down. Wow. It, it was what they call heat lightning, so it wasn't like it was getting ready to storm, but, you know, there were clouds. There was just enough water that kind of caused the clouds to start lightning. And so, so just off in the distance while Paul was playing Helter Skelter, there was this natural light show going on. It's like, yeah, that's right. Somebody up there likes this song. Are you sure it wasn't, you know, special effects from Paul's great team? <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure. They would have had to have sent a helicopter up there to seed the clouds in order to, to make that happen. And I don't think there were no helicopters flying over during the show. No. That's my addition, which has nothing to do with Paul McCartney's life and lyrics, but it's a great story and has to be told since we're talking about it. Yeah. It ends with Paul Muldoon telling us that he will be back. This concludes the first season of our podcast. We'll be back soon with more episodes drawn from this treasure trove of lyrics, including McCartney's own favorite McCartney song, which, if you didn't know, they even play a little bit of it here, there, and everywhere. Stay tuned. I completely forgot from my first time of listening to these. This time, I noticed that, and I completely forgot that they'd actually said that it was the end of the first season, and they'd said it was the end of the first season, and there was a second season coming. I forgot that they'd said this. They actually announced that there would be two seasons. There are no plans for a third, but they could certainly try and do a third if the second is successful. I would love to know the numbers of listeners to this. They must have had one hell of a good amount of downloads or so, listens. Anyway, that is our look at season one of the McCartney Life and Lyrics podcast. And what a season. I think we're all really happy with it. And I'm really looking forward to the next batch because while not rough, they clearly didn't quite know how they wanted to put together these episodes as they move along. But by the time you kind of get halfway through this first series, they're really starting to roll in how they want to assemble these episodes. Yeah, by the time you get to this last episode, I think they've hit that production style and structure 
that I think they will keep now into the second season. So the next batch of 12, I'm really looking forward to. One thing which, listening through this time, I noticed, which I didn't notice before, is, you know, they try and end every episode with a little bit of talk about the current tour and, and what Paul is doing on stage. It's like, well, okay, all right. So, I mean, that may be part of how they're choosing these songs that they're doing in this show. That's interesting. He could be doing a tour and then he could say, right, we're going to talk about these 12 songs and I will put them into the, the set list for the for the next ooh, three to four months before the third season comes out. You look at this last batch, you got Blackbird. I mean, he's not doing Jenny Ren live. I wish he would. So do I. Too many people, which he doesn't do, but he kind of does live and then... Helter Skelter, which is part of the live show. And then before that, you had Live and Let Die. That's definitely a production thing they came up with somewhere along the way during this first season. It's like, if we can, let's end every episode with a little bit of a talk and maybe a little clip of Paul playing the song live. Didn't Paul used to actually do live Jenny Wren? For that tour he did. For the Chaos tour he did. For the the Chaos tour. That's the only time he ever played it live but he did play it live yes which live video have i seen that what what was the chaos tour what video would that be the us tour that had uh, english t on it and and that was the chaos album i think i've seen it on video yeah i don't remember if jenny ren is in that video or not i have to go refer to the two episodes that lonnie Pena and i recorded together as we did a commentary track for the us tour not too long ago. If you've missed it, go into the archive and listen. All right. Very good. We will be back. We got one more week before we get the underdub version of McCartney. So we have to come up with another topic for next week. We don't know what we're going to be recording for next time, but we'll find something. Yep. We'll see if we can get older, some ornithologist. <laughs> Talk to you soon. Take care. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California.
I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again.